Well, we are in the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. If you're there, say, I'm there. All right, we are going to read the remainder of chapter 1. We're going to go all the way through to chapter 2, verse 5. But let's begin by reading God's word, beginning in chapter 1, verse 24. This is God's word, and it says, Paul speaking, he says, I now rejoice. Everyone say rejoice. Rejoice. What's he rejoicing in? He's rejoicing in his sufferings for you. And fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. That's such an interesting phrase. Can't wait to dive into it. For the sake of his body, which is the church. Verse 25. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you. To fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach. Everyone say, him we preach. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Well, as we continue our study in the book of Colossians, we're in a transitionary phase within the book. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, the, the beginning of chapter one is all about the, the exceptional, the excel, excellency. That's a kind of a hard word. How excellent Christ is, how magnificent Christ is, his sovereignty, his power. It's just going on the display of how amazing Christ is. Is But then he here begins to go from the exaltation of Christ and he transitions before he gets into correction and into exhortation for the remainder of this letter. He kind of sits here for a second and he gets real personal with the church of Colossae. And this is kind of classic Paul. He usually does this. Like usually his letters begin theological. They end practical and there's a transitionary phase between the chapters. And this is the case here in the book of Colossians. The first part, very dense theological. In fact, there's going to be a bit more theological that comes up. We're going to look at next week before it moves into the practical. But here there is this transitionary phase here from the exaltation of Christ and then into this personal ministry of Paul. And what I want to highlight out of our text tonight, and really I believe it's true to our text tonight, is four trademarks of Paul's ministry that he lays out before us. Four trademarks of Paul's ministry. We're going to see first that Paul's ability to rejoice in adversity in verse 24. We're going to see Paul's ability to reveal God's mystery from verses 25 to 27. We're going to see Paul's goal or heart to raise all to maturity from verse 128 into chapter 2 verse 3. And then we're going to see Paul's trademark of rebuking heresy, which is really going to go into next week as well. But let's begin by looking at this first trademark of Paul's ministry that we see really throughout all of his life. But he he refers to right here in verse 24. The first trademark of Paul's ministry is that he rejoiced in adversity. Read with me again. Verse 24. Paul, the apostle says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. And fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, 
which is the church. Now, once again, reminder, we just looked at this breathtaking, awe-inspiring look at the beauty of who Christ is. We just finished looking at the, the reality that Christ is the creator of all things, that he's the firstborn of all things, that he's the sustainer of all things, that he's reconciling all things to himself. We just looked at the exaltation of who Jesus is. And certainly the, the, the preceding verses was all about the power and the deity of Christ. And this is an unmistakable theme and point within the book of Colossians, that Christ is God, that Jesus is God, that he's all powerful, that he's all knowing, that he's all sufficient. This is at the forefront of Paul's mind and teachings to the Colossians. Yet the irony is that he's writing these things from jail. And to many, this would seem ironic that he's talking about the majesty of Christ in one moment and then his sufferings in the next moment. This would have been ironic to many that the man that was teaching them about the power of Jesus is being held by the power of Rome. And this is what the critics were always criticizing Paul for. They were often critiquing and criticizing Paul's imprisonments and his sufferings. And they would do this to discredit his ministry. So Paul takes a moment here from going from the exaltation of who Jesus is. And before he transitions into the remainder of the book, he takes a a moment to just address the elephant in the room, which is... If your God is so powerful, then Paul, why are you suffering so much? He takes a moment to address this this critique of Paul's ministry. And notice that Paul's response to this rhetorical question, it shows that Paul is not ashamed of his suffering. No, he rejoices in his suffering. Before we get into verse 24, let's just define for a moment different types of sufferings. There are different types of sufferings and afflictions that we all face. There are some sufferings that are a result of our mistakes. There really is. There's consequences for our actions. In fact, if you read the entire book of Proverbs, that's really the summary of it. Don't be a fool. Be wise. If you're a fool, you perish. If you're a fool, you're dumb. Like that's the book of Proverbs in a nutshell. No, choose wisdom. But then you have the book of Job, which is right there. And the book of Job is that suffering for Job. It was not a result of his foolishness. No, it was a result of just unexplainable suffering. So there's some suffering that's a result of the consequences of our actions. There's a lot of other suffering that's just totally unexplainable. There's, there's this thing called a pandemic. There's war. There's injustices. There's disease. There's sickness. These are just the unexplainable suffering within our world that's a result of our fallen world. It's a result of the effects of sin within the world. But then there's another form of suffering. And that form of suffering is suffering for the sake of the gospel. It's suffering for the sake of 
of the church. It's actually suffering for following Jesus and being obedient to his will. That is the form of suffering that Paul is mentioning when he says that he's rejoicing in suffering. And I think that's important to note. He's not rejoicing in some disease that he has. He's not rejoicing in some horrendous incident that's happening. No, the suffering that he's referring to is a suffering that he's suffering on behalf of Christ for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the church. It is in that context of suffering that he is rejoicing. So why? Or how can Paul rejoice in such circumstances as he's suffering for the gospel, as he's suffering on behalf of Christ, as he's suffering for the sake of church? Why? Well, he says that it is for the church that he's suffering. Notice there, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. He's suffering for them on their behalf. But then he makes this really interesting statement. To fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. What in the world does that mean? Lacking in the afflictions of Christ? What's he saying here? Well, I love what Pastor John Piper said referring to this verse. Regarding Paul's statement, Piper says this, Paul's suffering is the visible reenactment of the suffering of Christ for others So that when they see Paul suffering to reach them, to touch them, to love them, they will have a visual enactment of Christ's love for them. In other words, Paul is suffering on their behalf. In doing so, he's reflecting the ministry of our suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, who it was through his suffering that he actually demonstrated his great love for us. That in the words of Paul in Romans chapter 5, that he would be willing to die, to suffer and die, not for the godly, but for the ungodly. It was Paul's suffering for the sake of sinners that is the greatest demonstration of love. Therefore, what is lacking is not on Jesus's end. What was lacking was on the church's end, the church of Colossae's end, in their understanding of the suffering that Jesus endured on their behalf. Therefore, he rejoices in the suffering he's experiencing because the suffering he's experiencing is a visual reenactment of the suffering ministry of Jesus. Therefore, he is a reflection of Jesus for the church in Colossae to see, wow, Paul really believes what he's talking about. He's really committed to this resurrected Jesus and this gospel. He's really committed to extend this love to this church. Therefore, it is a demonstration of the ministry of Jesus. Paul's reenacting to show his great love for them. Everyone following? Very cool. So this is the idea here. Therefore, the application is for us. One of the ways that we can show our love to other people is to grow, go at great lengths at our own expense that they might see that sacrificial love displayed in our lives. 
So this is Paul's idea. This is why Paul is able to rejoice. And this is an important undertone that he is addressing before he moves forward in this epistle. Essentially, Paul recognizes that this powerful Jesus mentioned in Colossians chapter 1 in the preceding verses just moments before, this powerful Jesus was also a suffering Jesus. This powerful God who created all things, who holds all things together, who's the firstborn over all creation, this powerful and mighty God is also a suffering God. Is also a God who subjected himself to the things of this world. He knows what suffering is like. There is no other God in the history of the ideas of who God is. In theologies, in religions, in worldviews, there is no other God who suffered on the behalf of others except the God of the Bible, except Jesus. This sets Jesus apart from anything else. That yes, he is all powerful, undeniably. Yet in his power, he subjected himself lowly to experiencing suffering so that what? He could rewrite the narrative of suffering. That suffering is not only due to sin and failure, as religious people would say. That suffering is not for personal holiness and fulfillment, as some of the ascetics would say. No, the most powerful being in all the universe subjected himself to suffering. Therefore, through the common experience of suffering that we all face, we are able to relate to God and to suffer out of love for other people in reflection of our God. You see, the extent of his suffering for us was the greatest example of his love. You see, Jesus rewrote the narrative of suffering. That suffering on behalf of God, that suffering even due to the fallen unexplainable suffering in this world, that suffering in those senses is not punitive in nature. But now because of Christ, it is redemptive in nature. You see, it was Bible commentator and pastor Warren Wearsby who says this, commenting on Paul's suffering. He stated, the head in heaven feels the suffering of his body on earth. We as the body of Christ, when we suffer, the head feels it. Jesus knows. He's in the midst of suffering with us. God is always present. He's always near, yet get this, he draws exceptionally close to those who are suffering. God is with us all throughout our life, just as you're with me in this room right now. But if I'm suffering, man, he draws even closer, as if one of you came up here and you actually got close to me. It's when we are in the midst of suffering, God draws even nearer because he sympathizes with our weaknesses. And so this is certainly a trademark of Paul's ministry, that he was able to rejoice in adversity. Why again does he rejoice in adversity? Because suffering for the sake of God and others is number one, a demonstration of Christ's sacrificial love. And number two, it is an invitation to experience Christ's presence. So by way of application, question, how do you respond to suffering in your life? Are you able to rejoice in adversity when difficult things happen? Are you able to rejoice 
Are you able to go at great lengths at your own expense to demonstrate the love of God to other people? Are we willing to do that? Because I think in reality, we get all too comfortable being comfortable. In fact, I just finished reading a book a few months ago called The Coddling of the American Mind. I thought this was interesting and worth sharing with you. It was a social commentary on the rise of what the authors called the three great untruths. And notice these authors, they were, they were not Christians. They were just psychologists commentating on what our world's going on, the different thoughts. And this is coming from them. They identified three great untruths that our culture has bought into. These three cultural, what are now truths, within our culture, they actually defy all ancient wisdom. And they define the first cultural truth as being this, what doesn't kill me makes me weaker. The opposite of the saying, what doesn't kill me makes me The point being that the cultural norm has shifted And it has now become one of the cultural truths to resist anything that brings discomfort or hardship that's not good. And this is a problem that we need to keep in our mind in our own lives because this cultural norm affects our way of thinking when we enter into suffering and we say, oh, suffering's not good at all. Having a bad day is not good at all. Therefore, God must be mad at me. Therefore, God isn't good. Therefore, this isn't okay. And it certainly needs to be on our mind when younger people or other people are coming into the church, they're experiencing God and you have prosperity preachers that are saying, now that you're following Jesus, everything's gonna be okay because those preachers have fallen in to this idea as well. That anything and anything of discomfort, anything hard is not God. But we see here, Paul is saying that he's rejoicing in suffering. That Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow after me. That Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Notice the prerequisite for getting Jesus's comfort is mourning. Implying that we're going to go through difficulty and going through hardship. Yet it is in that difficulty and in that hardship that we can rejoice because we know that God is using that suffering for the purposes of his kingdom. And that in that suffering, we have a unique invitation to identify and experience the presence of God. So this is the first trademark of Paul's ministry. I got three more in about 10 minutes. So let's go. Uh, The second trademark of Paul's ministry we see is that he revealed God's mystery. He revealed God's mystery. Read with me again, verse 25 to verse 27. He says that he's suffering for the sake of the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, Paul references here a mystery that he has been given as a steward by God to declare. Notice that he refers to himself as a minister or a servant. This is not a mystery that he came up with. It's not something that he thought of, but that he's a steward of and that he's a servant of to declare to others. And his thought in declaring this mystery is to fulfill the word of God, which is really the idea is to fully teach the word of God in this 
mystery that's within the word of God. So what is this teaching? What is the mystery that was hidden for ages and from generations, but is now revealed? What is that ministry? That ministry, or sorry, that mystery, that mystery is twofold. Number one, it is the riches of God's glory to the Gentiles. And number two, it is the hope of God's glory, Christ in you. So he's declaring this mystery. What's this mystery? It's the mystery that the riches of God's glory have been given to the Gentiles. In other words, it is the mystery of the church. Stop and just think for a second. In the Old Testament scriptures, this was hidden. It was not clear that God was going to do this great new work that the Messiah would come, Jesus, that he would suffer and die, that he would be resurrected, ascended, and then that the Spirit would come down and birth the church of both Gentile and Jew. That was a mystery. Paul is now declaring this mystery, the mystery of God working in and through the church, which is made up of both Jew and Gentile. Paul explicitly explains what this mystery is in Ephesians chapter three, verse six. He says this. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You see, the mystery that was hidden, the mystery that was hidden in the Old Testament is that in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, he is instituting a new humanity and a new creation. That we would be born again into this new humanity into this new creation. This was a mystery in the Old Testament that Paul is willing to die to declare. It's the beauty and the truth of the gospel. This new humanity is referred to as the church, which is a unification of both Jew and Gentile. The New Testament church was hidden in the Old Testament. The riches of God's glory and his presence in his life would now extend to both Jew and Gentile. That's the first part of this mystery. The second part of this mystery is how then is that accomplished? How is God unifying the Jew and the Gentile? How is God birthing this thing called the church that we reference? How is he doing that? Well, he's doing that through the indwelling of Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, which is the hope of our glory, which is also a mystery in the New Testament. Are you all following? So how was the church birth? It wasn't birth till when? Acts chapter two, the day of Pentecost. When what? The Holy Spirit came down. The Spirit of Christ now indwells us. So it's the indwelling of Christ, the hope of glory, Christ in you. That is the second part of this mystery. This is so unique to the time in which we're living in. No time in the history of the world was the presence of God living within humanity. Church, do we believe it? All throughout history, man had to make sacrifices and do things in order to get into the temple, to just be somewhere close into the presence of God. And if they touched it, man would surely die. But now, because of the work of Jesus, 
because of the cross and the resurrection, the presence of God now indwells the believer. This is exciting. This is unique. This was mysterious in ages and generations before that is now our norm that we cannot get numb to or apathetic to. Christ lives and dwells within us. And certainly this was even more shocking to both Jew and Gentile for the Gentiles weren't even allowed even close to certain areas within the temple region to experience the presence of God. They had restricted access. But now, because the body of Christ that was torn and then the temple veil torn from top to bottom saying, we now have all access to the presence of God and the presence of God has access to us. This is the mystery that Paul is declaring. This is a trademark of Paul's ministry to declare God's mystery. The work of Christ. What Jesus accomplished on the cross and how he is working through his church. This is the mystery of God that Paul is revealing. And so I again ask you, by way of application, do you marvel at the reality of Christ's indwelling presence? Do you allow yourself to be formed into the new creation that he is calling you to be? Number three, the third trademark of Paul's ministry as we continue here in verse 28. Paul says this, and I love it. Him we preach, Christ we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect, or your translation might say, mature in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Another trademark of Paul's ministry is that his goal was to raise all, every man, every man and woman, to raise all to maturity in Jesus. It was to uncover the mysteries and the wisdom of God so that the grow, the church might grow in maturity. Paul says something similar in Ephesians chapter 4 in verses 15 to 16. He says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The raising up, the growing, the maturing of God's people was a trademark of Paul's ministry. It was a focus of Paul's ministry. It was a goal of Paul's ministry. Just consider for a second. The mystery that he's unveiling is the work of Jesus on the cross. That because of the work of Jesus, now the Holy Spirit comes in and we are born again, right? We're born again into a new creation. But being born again implies that we come in as babies. That we come in as infants. That we come in with baggage, that we come in with issues. Therefore, Paul's goal was not, not only to see us birthed or converted. No, it was so that we would be raised up. That we would grow up in the faith and the knowledge of Jesus so that we would be in maturity and dependent upon Jesus who is our head. This is the idea. This is the metaphor that Paul uses throughout his epistles to explain his heart to see the church grow. To see the church mature, not growing numerically, growing in maturity, being sanctified, 
being formed and transformed into the image of Jesus. Paul uses the word, the word in verse 29, striving. And that word there, to strive, is an athletic term to emphasize that the maturity of the church was the goal of his ministry that he was working toward. And he was working toward being reliant upon the power of the Holy Spirit, God's power working in him mightily. So his goal is that the church would grow to maturity. How is Paul going to reach this goal? What is his method to get us to grow up, to be raised into maturity from childhood to adulthood? Paul's method was to preach Christ. To preach Christ. This was his method. This was his way that we might grow. Paul preached Christ. Notice. Rules and regulations will not lead to spiritual maturity. Self-discipline will not lead to spiritual maturity. Principles in the five keys to success in work or family or marriage or wherever. That is not Paul's way of leading people to spiritual maturity. Paul did not preach his truth, my truth, your truth. No, Paul's goal was to raise the church to maturity. How did he do it? Paul preached Christ. Him we preach, he said. Him we preach. Christ we preach. Warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. It was through the preaching and the teaching of Jesus that we would grow up into maturity. Yet as we go on into chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, let's read. We notice this, that there's a conflict that comes up. In verse 1 we read, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you in those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. So as Paul has the goal of raising us all to maturity, the way he's going to raise us to maturity is by preaching Christ. Well, as he's going to his goal of raising us up and preaching Christ, he's hit a stumbling block. He's hit a conflict. And we're going to look into that conflict more next week. But it's a conflict that he mentions that he has to get past this conflict. And his goal to overcome this conflict is that we might then read with me in verse 20 or verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2, his goal in overcoming this conflict is that their hearts might be encouraged, that they might be knit together in love, that we might attain to all the riches of the full assurance of our understanding, which is the understanding of the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So he wants to get past this conflict to notice this, that we might be encouraged in our hearts, that they be encouraged in the hearts. Notice that's personal. So he wanted to personally encourage them. Then he wanted their hearts to be knitted together in love. That's relational. And the way he was going to do that was by them giving them attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of the Christ. In other words, in order to be relationally strengthened in love, to be personally encouraged, was to actually start theologically. To have a greater understanding of who Jesus is. And as we have a greater understanding vertically of who our God is, then horizontally we're going to be able to love one another better and then be personally encouraged. Now i only got a couple minutes. 
We got one more. But notice the banger that he drops here in Colossians 2 verse 3. This is the banger, all right? He says this. Speaking of Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Why did Paul preach Christ in Christ alone? Why did Paul preach Christ in Christ crucified? Why is preaching Christ the way to grow in spiritual maturity or to experience this new humanity that we've been born again into by the Spirit of God? Why? Because Paul is explicitly stating that all wisdom and knowledge is hidden in Christ. Or better understood... All wisdom and knowledge is stored in Christ. That's the idea of being hidden in Christ. All wisdom and knowledge is being stored in him. Jesus is the treasure chest of all wisdom and knowledge necessary for true abundant life. It's all found in him. Jesus is sufficient. He is enough. You see, this was very contrary to what the world was saying and the world still says today. That's why it's such a banger of a statement. That's why it's such a profound statement. All wisdom and knowledge is found and hidden in Jesus. Well, see, the Gnostics believe that knowledge was the gateway into abundant life. Religion states that wisdom is the gateway to abundant life, meaning wisdom being choosing right over wrong. If you choose right over wrong, then you'll get into abundant life. Atheism today states that scientific discovery is the gateway to knowledge and wisdom of a better life. If we only discover this and have this cure and this scientific discovery and this technology, then we'll be able to walk into this gateway of a good life. Today, the cultural belief can often also be that experience is the gateway into abundant life. It's all based on my feelings. I feel good and this experience was great and this this encounter was great and this relationship was great and this job experience was great. Then I'm entering into the abundant life. But notice the difference. Christianity states that Jesus is the gateway into the abundant life where then wisdom and knowledge is all found. You see, everything else was reversed. You have to get wisdom, you have to get knowledge, and then you enter into the abundant life. No, Christianity says you enter into abundant life by Jesus, and then you have access to all the wisdom and knowledge that you need. This is the beauty of who our God is. He is the treasure chest full of all the wisdom and knowledge that we need for everyday life. So my question then to you is, are you going to Jesus for wisdom and knowledge? Okay, fourth trademark is one minute. We'll be one minute over. The fourth would be to rebuke heresy. Let's just read verse 4 and 5. He says, Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. So the conflict that Paul brings up in verse 1 of chapter 2. He's trying to grow us up into maturity, but he's hit a roadblock. That roadblock is heresy. That heresy is defined as deceptive, implausible arguments. Deceptive, implausible, or deceptive and persuasive 
words. This heresy, and we're going to get into these heresies next week. These heresies were blocking the people from growing in spiritual maturity. What I want to point out to you right now, though, is the reality that the enemy's instrument of deception is words. The enemy's instrument of deception is words. What was the conflict? What was the problem? Were these deceptive and persuasive words. My friends, we have to be so careful of the words we speak, but even more so the words we hear, the ideas that we consume, the worldview in which we're looking to, because these ideas have power to deceive us and guide us away from the truth. These ideas, this deception, these persuasive words, this is what Paul will be warning at. And it's worth noting that John 8 refers to Satan as the father of lies. What are lies? They're words. What is Satan's tactic from Genesis chapter 3 in the garden to Matthew chapter 4 in the wilderness with Jesus? It's to do what? He always coats the lie with a little hint of maybe truth. A little hint of the word of God even. Twisting the word of God. Oh, we have to be so careful with ideas, with thoughts, with words. These are the ways in which the enemy deceives us and chokes us out from growing in spiritual maturity. So what does Jesus say in John chapter 8 after referencing Satan as the fathers of lies? In verse 31 of John 8, he says, Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This is what Paul was standing on. The truth of Jesus. The truth of his word. It is as the truth of Jesus we understand, we gain wisdom of, we experience, we grow in maturity. You see, Jesus is the truth incarnate. He is true. And in him all wisdom and understanding exists. Everything else There's a hint of deception in. So we have to be careful of the thoughts, the ideas that we are consuming. So four trademarks of Paul's ministry we'll look at tonight. First, that he rejoiced in adversity. And really you could say that that is he was willing to die for the truth. Second, we saw he revealed the mystery, which is he was revealing the truth. Then his goal was to raise all to maturity, which is to rely on on the truth for everyday life. And then he rebuked heresy. In other words, he defended the truth. So my question in in closing tonight is, do you love the truth? Not your truth, not my truth. The truth. It is as we focus on Jesus as the truth, we will grow in maturity. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, that its ability to cut, its ability to convict, its ability to encourage, its ability to exhort, its ability to grow and sanctify us. We want to be people who are stood, standing firm, steadfast in your truth. Father, I pray for the many of us in here, all the time, the deceptive lies are pumped into our mind by the things of this world. God, I pray that you would give us discernment and wisdom to be able to sift through all those things, to make sure that your word is the lens in which we're viewing the life around us, the life we're living, the lens in which we're looking at through our parenting, for our marriage, through our relationships, for work. God, I pray that you would help us to stand firm in your word and have an understanding of more of you. Jesus, we praise you. Would you have your time upon these discussion? In Jesus' name, amen.